Hello, shalom, salam, and hola. Welcome to the Hot Jewish Podcast. I'm Michael, aka Hot Jewish Energy. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, and Threads now. I guess it's called Threads. Um, well, no, that's Twitter. Now it's X, but that's besides the point. You can find me on all those social media platforms at Hot Jewish Energy, at Hot Jewish Podcast, and at Michael T. Valdez with an S at the end. Welcome to the second episode. This isn't the second episode that I'm filming though. This is actually the last episode that I'm filming and it is coming out, the series premiere is coming out in less than a week. So we are doing it now. It's been very tough trying to plan this, but we finally got it down. And today is a very, very special episode. I say that about every episode, but you know what? This is, pro this is probably one of the most important episodes of the season because it is with my mom. And she is here, she's waiting to be introduced and I made her step out, but it's gonna be very, very fun. It's gonna be very informative. It's gonna be very female empowering because she is a boss woman. So there's that, she's a Middle Eastern boss woman. So you know she means when shit goes down, shit goes down. So without further ado, I'm happy to introduce my mom, Dr. Edna Kappenhaus. Yay! Hi! Hello! Welcome. Thank you. Thank Welcome. you for having me on Absolutely. the podcast. And Stinky too, I'm sorry. This is Stinky, our, our dog. He's a Maltese and he's having a nice little siesta now. So we're gonna, we're gonna have some fun. So how are you? I'm good. You're good? Thank you for having me. But you don't even need to thank me. You knew you were gonna be on this from the second it started. But we're gonna start off with talking about this food that I have right here. We're gonna show it into the camera for those of you listening, you should be watching. But here, this is a beautiful dish called Fesantjun. It is a Irani dish. And I hope the mic still is doing its thing. But um, mom, do you wanna tell them about this dish that I'm about to consume? And Stinky, I know you So actually. it's uh, one of the traditional Persian food that's uh, made with, uh, traditionally it's made with chicken, but you can use other stuff. You can use duck, turkey, some people even use beef, but uh, more commonly you use chicken and it has walnuts in it um, and uh, pomegranate. So it's a very- um, Interesting dish. Interesting dish. Yes. All right. I've tried it already. It's delicious, but we're going to do it again. I have not <laughs> eaten today. So, and I'm going to be eating this during it because I need food, but and it's her food. So it makes sense, but. Bon appetit. Nushajun. Mm. Nushajun. <laughs> it's good. And she made it with potato tabi for my Persians watching. This stuff is so good. This is gonna be very difficult for me to eat during this, but we're gonna try. But you've already talked about this with me a lot, but I think it's important that people know what the immigrant experience is like being from Iran. So I wanna start off with what was it like growing up there? I know you left when you were very young, but from what you do remember, what was it like growing up? So um, I came here when I was uh, 15 years old. I'm gonna give away my age now, but um, that was in 1983. So uh, when the uh, revolution happened in 1979, 
um, everything completely changed. So prior to uh, when the new regime took over, uh, when Shah was there, uh, things were completely different. Um, it was very uh, westernized, uh, very uh, Americanized, uh, very American friendly. Um, and after that, of course, everything changed. So for me, it was uh, a complete shock, even though I was uh, very young, uh, but it went from, you know, uh, prior to 1979, where you could openly uh, um, practice your Judaism and wear whatever you wanted, um, walk outside with whoever you wanted, uh, it drastically changed to, okay, now you gotta cover your hair, you gotta wear modest clothing, you can't uh, walk outside if, if you're a female, you can't be with a male unless they're hus your husband or you're going out to get married. Uh, couldn't just have a date uh, or just have a friend who happens to be a male uh, friend. Um, and even though the, you know, the governments, you know, said they're uh, open to Jews practicing Judaism, it's, there, there was a lot of restrictions. When that change happened and the government was overthrown and the radical Islamic regime took over, how were you able to get out? because it was probably very, very difficult for most people to get out, but how, how were you specifically able to get out? So it was very difficult, uh, especially for, uh, uh, for Jews to, to get out. Um, I was able to get out because my mom, your grandma, uh, had uh, medical problems and uh, she needed a treatment that was available here in US. So and wasn't we available got, there was not available there. So we got special permission uh, to get her here and they allowed me to leave with her, to accompany her. Okay. Once we came here, of course, so we were on a visa. Uh, once we got here, we basically put in a, 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 our uh, refugee status and did all the paperwork and eventually, you know, first green card or, and then after that, after many years, you didn't get it until you were 21, right? For for my citizenship, um, I I was in my 20s. Yeah, You're beginning my of age. my 20s, I think. Yeah, it took several years to go through the whole process of yeah. a long time to get the citizenship. Yes. And that's interesting because a lot of people say the opposite. They say a long time ago it was very easy to get your citizenship. Well, it, it took it still take took several years to get it because you got to go through the different processes uh, of getting it and filing all the paperwork and when you finally came here as you were as a, you were caught well it was probably a very big cultural shock for you being here where where did you end up going to school I mean I already know this question but they they don't know the answer so um, what was the environment we like came here I, it was in August of 1983, just shortly after that, I started... Also, uh, you've... So, August of 1983, 93, 03, 13... You've been here 40, for 40 years this year, wow! That's correct, yeah. Crazy. So, shortly after that, um, I started uh, um, the rest of my high school here, and it was a cultural shock, especially that 
even though I knew some English, um, I, it wasn't nearly enough to understand what was going on in classes. So it was very difficult. Uh, the culture was different, uh, so it, it was a culture shock. Uh, and the language barrier was very, very difficult. Uh, but How did people treat you? So I started in yeshiva. Um, Orthodox yeshiva, nonetheless. nonetheless. And you guys weren't Orthodox. That's correct. So you already have one thing against you. Now you're also a refugee, you're a foreigner. I'm a refugee, I'm a foreigner. I don't know the language very well. Uh, So I can't really openly and fluently communicate with all the other kids in school. I did not have as many clothes as they had. I wasn't fashion, it wasn't, you know, we didn't have much money, so it was just basic clothing. Um, Whereas, you know, all the other students had multiple clothing, some of them like, you know, they're very well off. Most of them were well off. And, you know, whatever was in fashion was the thing to wear. Uh, but we couldn't afford that, and uh, so I was, you know, it was difficult. That was difficult as well. I was teased. I used to get teased about what I wore, or, you know, I don't know. People would kind of give you like a side side eye. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, because the education was more advanced In in Iran, Little by little, they kind of, the kids got, they warmed up to me because now they realized that my math, for example, was more advanced than theirs. So they would ask me, oh, how do you, how do you come up with this problem or something like that? So it's like the typical thing in a movie where they tease the nerd for not having the newest clothes or not having, or not being cool per se, which I think is dumb, but, but they're the ones that they cheat off of. They're the ones that they want to get all the help they can because they're, they're trying to, they realize that you have assets. Correct, correct. Um, and eventually, you know, I made some friends, uh, mm-hmm. which made it a little bit easier. It's uh, interesting because the friends that you kept, you, you kept a lot of your friends from Iran, but you didn't really keep a lot of your friends from, chi- from high school. True. Yeah. So after you finished high school, you you went to college. You so were first generation to go to college. Initially, I became I studied to become a laboratory technologist so I could work and make some money while I go to college. That, I didn't know that. Yeah. And that's the same thing that Dad did. Yep, and that's how we met. Yep. You never really even. You never even really told me how you guys met. So you guys met in the same class, or no? We met in the hospital when we were doing labs. Uh, inter- yeah, laboratory. I think I was doing like an internship, and I think he was already working there. So oh, you were kind of shadowing him in a way. He was. I think he showed me some stuff. Yeah. yeah oh wow. Yeah. So initially you did that. Right, and then where did you go? Uh, I went to Queens College. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, I was working at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, so I could make money uh, mm-hmm. to help out with the education. I was lucky enough because I had uh, excellent grades. Um, I was able to get uh, financial aid for yeah. right, so that was that you're was on, very very helpful. Macaulay, 
well, not Macaulay honors, but something equivalent to that. I was, so yeah, I, w- I graduated as um, some summa cum laude. So um, because uh, I was on honor roll uh, the whole time, I was able to keep my financial aid. Um, Which helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would not have been able to pay for it um, if it wasn't because of the financial aid. Yeah. So once I graduated uh, from college, I, I always wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew that wouldn't have been possible in Iran. No way, being a female Jewish, uh, a Jewish woman coming from Iran. Um, but I knew that I could accomplish, accomplish that here. Mm-hmm. Um, so after uh, Queen's College, um, I uh, started my medical school. Uh, I started out with a program that the Turo Technion, so Technion in Israel. Mm-hmm. So you do a year here, you would do it at Turo. You get, at the same time, you get your master's. And then you go to Israel to get your medical degree. Uh, so I got my master's here. I went to Israel for two years. And that was the first time you were in Israel? That was the first time I was in Israel. And, and you lived in, where did you live? Haifa. Mm-hmm. Mount Carmel, Haifa. So although beautiful place and I love Israel, I and you became, got robbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a, as a tour, you know, they thought we were tourists. When we moved into the apartment, we had some, you know, electrical stuff that we had brought, you know, camera and stuff like that that we had with us. Um, and when we were in home in the apartment, they robbed us. They took everything. So I stayed there for two years. Um, I became very homesick. I wanted to come home. So I came back home. Uh, I transferred to SUNY Buffalo. Uh, School of Medicine, and that's where I got my, my medical degree at SUNY Buffalo. And you don't miss it there? Buffalo? No, no, it's the extremely cold. Terrible. The winters were terrible, <laughs> yeah. Uh, for someone who doesn't like cold weather, it was, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. But I survived. Yeah. Yeah. So then you finished medical school. Where did that lead you to? I finished medical school, then I did a, a general surgery residency, which was for five years. Mm-hmm. And I became interested in uh, breast cancer, so I won't decide. It, and you, if I'm remembering correctly, you wanted to do something or, different originally. Yeah, so originally I wanted to do cardiothoracic surgery, which is the surgery of doing heart surgery and chest surgery. But towards my fourth year, I decided um, I wanted to become a breast surgeon. So once I finished uh, five years of general surgery, then I did another year of specialties called a fellowship in breast surgery. Um, what, my, led, what led you to breast cancer though? Why specifically that? Um, so something personal um, that happened uh, in my life, uh, which uh, I'm gonna keep that, uh, no, that yeah. uh, private. However, something personal happened in my life um, uh, re- related to someone uh, very close to me. And, um, and also I realized how much research uh, there, there is, is in breast cancer and how much um, it has progressed. The progress in breast cancer were years ago, 
uh, breast cancer was a death sentence is no longer true. And every day there is more progress. So that, um, that helped me pick this. You wanted something that you would continue learning. You didn't want something where it was just going to stay the same pretty much for a very long time. Yeah. Um, I wanted something also that I can develop a report with the patients that I would follow them forever. I get to felt know them. Felt more personal. Felt more personal. Yeah. 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 Whereas, you know, when if you're a general surgeon, not that there's anything wrong with a general surgeon, but you know, you do a surgery in someone, you do their gallbladder or their appendix, you see them, you know, after surgery, and then after, you know, okay, come back if you need me. Whereas your breast cancer patients, you you know, I follow them for life. Yeah, um, they come back every year. Yeah. Yeah. I know you were in the city originally. You were at Beth Israel, which is now Mount Sinai. They bought it out. But Correct. what led you to wanting to go out to the Hamptons? When I was in Beth Israel, uh, a position became available at Southampton. I was approached. Uh, believe it or not, it's a small world, but uh, the, um, the chief medical officer of Southampton Hospital happened to be my mentor when I did my residency. Mm-hmm. So he found out I, did a, I was a breast surgeon and basically he uh, approached me and he wanted to recruit me and um, that's why I joined Southampton. He, they needed a breast surgeon, and I thought it was a great opportunity to join a community that really needed this uh, uh, specialty. That was the best decision I made. Um, the community is now you're you're the head of your own center, your your own boss in a way. And the community really appreciates me being there. It's a very small community. Yeah, it's a community-based hospital. Um, I, you know, Stony Brook, we joined Stony Brook uh, a few years ago, but uh, we're still a community hospital. The patients appreciate that I'm there, and um, it feels great. I feel like I'm valued being there. So with all your work at Southampton, what made you want to do work internationally? Because you, you I don't know if you guys see it on online on my page, but... We go to the Caribbean every year to do nonprofit work, but why? What made you want to do that? So I founded um, an international mission. It's called International Breast Cancer Surgical Mission. I founded it in 2012, um, working with another uh, foundation, which is Island Impact Ministries. Uh, their headquarters is in uh, Florida. So we team up with them every year. I take a whole team with me, a whole medical team, uh, including, you know, of course, me, the surgeon. I usually take another surgeon with me. We have radiologists, anesthesiologists, uh, pathologists. Uh, We have sonographers and nurses and nurse practitioners and volunteers. And we go to Dominican Republic for about seven to 10 days every year. And we operate on uh, patients who, were either diagnosed with breast cancer or we go there and we diagnose them and then we get them ready for surgery we operate on them. Everything is free. Uh, we actually fundraise to uh, raise the funds for the supplies that we use over there so we buy everything here and we take it with us. Uh, the rest of the expenses as far as the housing and um, the airfare 
we pay for it ourselves out of our own money and uh, we use our own vacation time to do that. So what made me want to do this, I always wanted to do that and I really didn't know how to start it and it just, uh, I got lucky, somebody approached me and said, well I know this foundation, do you want to team up with them? And I was like, fantastic, I've been wanting to do this now uh, for a while, I just didn't know how to start it. What's amazing is these patients, unfortunately, they have nothing uh, and some of them come from other places. Some of them come from Haiti. Uh, they're not insured. So these women actually cross the border uh, from Haiti. They come to Dominican. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it's sad to say, but even Dominican, they even, they don't want the, the Haitian people going Not all there, of them, so. but, the, but the one, but the people that you've had experience with, they really they really don't they want if they're not even gonna some of them aren't even gonna help their own people yeah which it's very sad we're, we're not gonna lie and say that everyone is great there's some people that i mean i i go every year with my mom and i see how selfish some people are and they don't even want to treat their own people in their own country let alone why would they treat other people that are crossing the border so i mean Sometimes, I'm, a lot of the time, you, you can't really do anything for them. It's, I, and I see that, and it's really sad because they're just, it's so, they're so far gone. Yeah, so this, um, this year, uh, February of this year when we went, um, there were like two women. Uh, one of and them, I saw were, them. Were, yeah, one of them was very young. Both of them, they were too advanced, and uh, there was nothing I, we could do for them. It was already too advanced to do anything unfortunately so um so it's a sad situation yeah but it really i mean at least for me someone who's lay who's not when i say lay i mean someone who's not medical when i go there for me at least it's it's a reality check that i know everybody here in the u.s we're very very critical of our healthcare system and we're very we want the healthcare system to be better you always want the health healthcare system to be better. I went through that with, I, we're filming this after my dad passed, but we went through that with my dad and it it's truly disgusting how not only they treat people over 65, but people with disability in this country. It's really the nursing home system. I mean, frankly, it's, it's disgusting. It's very, it's, in, it's inhumane in a way. And I know how critical we are of our healthcare system in this country, but we need to be thankful because in third world countries like the Dominican and Haiti, it's way worse. It's like here, some people, sometimes people get so hissy because they can't get their prescription or they have to pay for their medication. Imagine you can't even have cancer removed or it's complete and it's completely out of pocket and it's not covered. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah. I know people, um, like you said, criticize the healthcare system, but still, no matter what, I think our healthcare system is is the best. It's one of it's one of the best. It's in one the of world. the best. Yes. Yeah. And you know, we take it. We we should not take it for granted mm -hmm. that um, I think the treatment that everyone everybody can be treated here. Nobody gets turned away. 
So there's always some place that you can find that they will treat you, no matter what, whether you're uh, uninsured, underinsured, yeah. documented, undocumented, you can still get treatment no matter what. You treat, I mean, you in Southampton, a lot of your patients are undocumented and they're not, and they're not legal here. So that's correct. We have undocumented patients. Uh, we have, obviously, they have no insurance. We have documented patients who are not insurance or they're, they're not insured or they're underinsured. Everybody gets treated. Nobody gets turned away. So we got and we pretty much encompassed your journey to where you are now and all the amazing work that you've done and that I've seen you do. I mean, I've been in the operating room with her. I've seen, I've viewed her surgery. I've obviously suited up, completely sterile, but getting to see all that you do because you get to see what I do all the time. I, you get to, she, she's at almost every single one of my performances whenever I have performances and I just, when I, I mean, when I go on that mission every year, that medical mission, I always get to see you do what you do. And I think that's really cool. And it's, it's very, it's, it's very life changing. I have to say that being on that mission, it really, I, I enjoy going every year because I enjoy seeing how happy all, all the women and men, men, men do get breast cancer, always make sure that you don't have lumps, whether you're man, woman, whatever gender you identify as, always, always check, make sure you don't have lunch, I said lunch, lumps, especially if you're on hormones, if you always, I know you always talk about that, if you're on, if you're on estrogen, if you're a transgender woman and you're on estrogen, always make sure that, and if you're taking it regularly, you should be checking to make sure that you don't have any lumps because are there, are there a lot of cases where there are transgender women that do develop breast cancer from hormone or it's, or it's more so rare? So I personally have not had, um, any patient so far who has been a, a transgender woman with breast cancer. But you also got to realize this is more of a it's more of a newer okay. uh, scenario that because it's been about. happening within the last decade. Yeah, but you know, it, you know, time kind of declares itself. So you know, with any situation, it okay. takes a few years for things to kind of declare itself and. Probably a few years from now, we're going to see all the different things that we have to worry about in these uh, kind of cases. Would you recommend that if, for, if you're watching and you identify as a transgender woman and you are on, on um, would it be considered hormonal therapy? Well, yeah. Okay, hormonal, that's yeah, the official it's term. It's, if you're, it's therapy, yeah. If you're on estrogen hormonal therapy, would you recommend that they consult um, a breast oncologist and have one on hand just in case something happens. I think that would be a good idea. It's smart. Yeah. Okay. You heard it from from a breast surgical oncologist. Um, yeah, if you're a transgender woman and you're on hormones, make sure you go get checked out because you want to make sure that you're not getting cancer. So, but keep doing you. Keep being fabulous. With all of what we've discussed in regards to how you got to where you are now. 
do you think that the experience that you've been through coming to this country with the language barrier and with getting accustomed to what it's like here, do you think that had an influence on who you are now? Absolutely. So I think the challenges that I went through, Mm -hmm. that molded me into a person that I am now. But I should say that I think going to medical school and specifically the residency and then dealing with patients, my patients every day, just sitting there and listening to them to uh, help them with their challenges, with their difficulties, with their everyday struggles, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with their cancers and going through the treatment, post-treatment, survivorship. I think that whole, all of that molded me into a better person, mm-hmm. uh, definitely a better physician. Do you think you were that same person that came here when you were 15, or that person is gone? Oh, that person is absolutely gone. Yeah, no, I'm not the same person. Do you, do you miss that person at all? I don't. Do you miss that sense of innocence? I would say I probably miss that sense of innocence, yeah. but. You also got to realize I was very shy, mm-hmm. uh, very timid. I, you know, I think going through this whole journey um, changed me. I became more vocal, uh, more involved with different things. Uh, not so shy anymore. Um, so a completely different person. Um, For I, the better. I think for the better. I'm happy with who I am. Um, Do you think you're still learning parts about yourself every day? Do you you feel 100% confident in who you are or do you still think there's room for a shift? Oh, so I 100% think that there's always room to learn um, about myself. about other people, medicine. Medicine is an ever-evolving, um, you know, it, topic, right? Uh, I mean, it, I always try to teach my residents and medical students that uh, the day you think you know everything and you learned everything, it's time to stop in this field because I learned it something every day you go to conferences every year some of them i come i tag along with her on because i want a little vacation but yeah it's a it's a continuing education Mm -hmm. Uh, medicine is continuously evolving you learn from conferences you learn from reading you learn from yourself uh and you learn from your patients uh you know it's humbling to realize that how lucky you are and how privileged you are to be able to take care of your patients, to make a difference in their lives, uh, make a difference in in the lives of their loved ones. Uh, I think it's a privilege and I thank God every day that um, I am privileged to be able to make a difference. Um, It's humbling. 
it's humbling because every time I walk into a patient's room and I have to give them the bad news that they have cancer, it keeps me grounded. Mm -hmm. It keeps me humble to realize how lucky I am. Uh, and sometimes I tell myself, what are you grumbling about? You, you're lucky that you're healthy, yeah, your family is healthy, um, and you're able to help these patients to get through what they need to get through. I also, I, I also mm -hmm. want to say that um, I never would have had this opportunity to be where I am if I would have stayed in Iran. Mm -hmm. Never. This country gave me everything. So I truly kiss the ground of oh, this country. I owe everything to this country. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the greatest country in the whole wide world. Um, I love this country. That's actually a perfect segue into how do you feel about all the recent issues that have been happening in this country, whether it be with anti-black racism or anti-Semitism. And as a Jewish woman, how, how is it affecting you? If it is affecting you? I, at times, uh, I should say very mildly do experience anti-Semitism. Comments that somebody makes uh, without knowing I'm Jewish, uh, that's hurtful. Um, but what I tell people when they ask me, oftentimes my patients ask me, well, you know, where are you from or, you know, what religion are you? You know, I tell them that um, medicine, um, I know it may sound cliche, but I consider medicine as one of, as my religion. Yes, I'm Jewish, but I'm a doctor. So I look at everybody the same. Uh, a patient is a patient, uh, a life is a life for me. It doesn't make a difference if, you know, based on the color of the patient or the race or ethnicity of the patient. Um, or their creed, or sexuality, it, none gender. Of that, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. uh, when I look at a patient, I don't see, you know, someone who is black or white or, uh, you know, any other person of color. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, Yes, most of my patients are women. I do have male patients with breast cancer. Um, as I said, at this time, I don't have any uh, uh, trans patients with breast cancer, but I do take care of um, some patients who are thinking about transition. But I, I look at them, they're a patient. To they're me, a human being. they're a human being, and the treatment is the same. Uh, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, based on any of those categories that we just said. Uh, so to me, oftentimes, uh, I think my staff sometimes, feel, you know, make fun of me because, you know, when we're trying to talk about a patient, Ms. So-and-so, and, you know, I can't remember if Ms. So-and-so is white or, or black. Uh, because what I'm looking, when I'm looking at them and examining them, I just see a human being. 
So later on, I can't remember what color they are, and it really doesn't matter to me what color they are. I don't know if they're insured or they're not insured. I don't look at their paperwork to see if they, I see them as a patient. So I feel privileged to be able to be in that position, uh, to help them the same. Everybody gets the same treatment. And yes, sometimes you refer to someone who's a family member of an employee as VIP, but the truth to me is every single patient is a VIP. So nobody gets you know more special treatment than anybody else because the treatment's the same. Mm -hmm. So in, in regards to what you asked about you know racism uh, or so against black people or against you know anti-semitism anti-semitism is a form of racism right. for people that did not know so any kind of racism uh, against any group uh, is dangerous because today is going to be anti-semitism tomorrow it's going to be anti another anti-black anti-asian yeah so it's, you know if everybody just stands aside and say, well, it's not about me, I'm not Jewish, so I don't care if there's anti-Semitism, or it's not about me because I'm not black. If everybody took that attitude, then, then I don't the know. the problem wouldn't be solved. Not only the get, problem it wouldn't be solved, the problem would get, worse. will get worse because, you know, today is one thing, tomorrow is going to be another group, and every day another group is going to be targeted. So. You know, unfortunately, there are people who say, well, you know, it doesn't involve you. Why are you, you know, talking against it? Because it's not right. So even if it doesn't involve me as a Jewish woman or as a Jewish person, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to speak against it, even if it's not anti-Semitism. But if something's not right, something's not right. It if something's matter. not right, you know, unfortunately, we can't take that attitude. That's the attitude. That's how Holocaust happened, right? You know, there was very few. That's how slavery happened. That's because, Jewish people and black people. Right, because most people basically turned their. They turned a blind eye. Right, and they stay silent, yeah. but. Being silent and not speaking up is worse than actually committing the crime. Being because you basically <laughs> being a bystander is worse. They say right. they always there's the saying that you're not gonna remember what the hate I forget the exact wording, but you're not gonna remember what the aggressor said. You're gonna remember the silence of the people around you that That's didn't correct. say anything. That's correct. And we we witness that. I, I know I witness that sometimes yeah. where somebody says something, you know, and like anti-Semitic yeah. and then, yeah. you know, and the whole room is like silent and you wonder, wait a minute, did why I, was it? I, why, was I the only one who heard it or it's just, you know, Am nobody wants to. I the only one that has a problem with it? Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, the silence can be deafening. It, I mean, it's a lot, it, and I, pre I appreciate when Jewish people come forward and they speak up because I know a lot, some Jewish people are afraid, but for whatever reason they're afraid, but 
for my non-Jewish friends and people, supporters who don't speak up, that that's way more upsetting than when Jews don't speak up because in the in the group in the ethno religion that we're in in Judaism we've always stood up for each other more recent years some people have kind of been slacking and i think people need to pick it up but and i think some people are afraid very uh, afraid you know for I mean, career some for, people tell you you know Michael, you shouldn't wear your Maginda vet because people are going to see you Jewish and they and you you're know, a target. You can be targeted. Um, but how are you gonna how are you gonna stand up to what stand up for what's right if you're gonna cower? It's so you know you you don't need to hide your Judaism. But I remember you always tell me you say that if it's a situation where you really think that your life is not gonna that your life is going to be in danger and we know one of the biggest principles is, is saving your own life Correct. protect protecting your own life and protecting another life those are big big rules so if it means not putting on your necklace one day because you're in an area that you don't think you'll feel safe that's okay it doesn't make you any less jewish it doesn't make you any more jewish i mean i definitely i feel I feel pride when I wear my necklace. But, but you gotta be smart about it. You gotta it. be smart about it. Yeah. And you gotta know what area you're in, you gotta know what people you're surrounded by. If you're going over to a friend's house and you're gonna be in an intimate setting and you know your friends are supportive, wear whatever the hell you want. Do whatever you want. But if you're gonna be walking out in the street at like whatever hours of the night or morning or whatever and you don't know the area well, you don't know that it's gonna be a safe area, maybe tuck it in, maybe put it in your pocket never cower and never reject who you are but maybe don't put it out on display because putting it out on display someone may break the glass and take it that's actually a really good that's a good analogy i'm gonna use that more if you feel like someone's gonna break the display why even have it on display in the first place yeah i mean there are people who tell me you know they don't if someone asks them they don't say they're Jewish that I, that's know, where yeah, I have an issue with that yeah I don't advertise uh, you know I, I mean I'm a physician I don't go around Saying telling my Jewish. patients oh by the way I'm Jewish obviously if someone asks me um, hide it. I'm not gonna hide it if someone tells me do you you know um, do you celebrate uh, what holiday do you celebrate okay well I'm Jewish I celebrate the Jewish holidays uh, so I'm not gonna lie about it. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not yeah. gonna hide it. I'm proud to be Jewish, uh, but I don't necessarily uh, go around, you know, yelling, just yelling that I'm Jewish. Yeah. Um, it's very much. It's not like I say. Judaism isn't a one size fits all. I'm, it really isn't. It's what you make of it. It's what you feel comfortable doing. It's what you feel safe doing. If it's a, if it's a matter of safety, and I feel it sometimes that I don't know if you feel it, but even if I'm in a room full of other Jews, and we're all doing our own thing, sometimes sometimes it just feels lonely. In what sense? That everybody is advocating for the same thing but you don't feel connected while advocating for it, if that makes sense. 
or that you celebrate the holidays, but sometimes you don't really feel connected with everyone else. You don't really have that sense of community. I think it also um, depends what's the population around you, who are they? Because mm -hmm. there are different groups of Jewish people. There's the ultra-Orthodox, the you know, modern, modern Orthodox, Orthodox, conservative, conservative reform. Yeah. So, yeah. And you know, unfortunately, you know, maybe the ultra-Orthodox doesn't consider... The, they don't embrace... Yeah, yeah. They, they don't embrace reform or conservative because they're not religious or observant enough. It creates a separation, uh, which it shouldn't of, be. And racially, too. There's a lot of, True. unfortunately, yeah. and we have to take a moment and acknowledge it because it's there. It's the elephant in the room. There, there is racism from Jew to Jew. From there's a lot, there's a lot of anti-black. There, there's a lot of anti-blackness within the Jewish community. Not all Jews are anti-black. We're going to make that very clear. But there are some Jews that are not very receptive toward black people. And how the hell does that make black Jews feel? Because they're real. They exist. They're just as Jewish as anyone else. They're equally as Jewish, somewhat even more Jewish, some of them, and it's it's very upsetting. I I see a lot of that. Saw a lot of that even when I was in yeshiva. I even experienced that as as a mixed Jew. Um, dad's dad was Cuban, and you're Irani, and I wasn't Persian enough for the Persian kids. I wasn't white enough, even though Jews are not white. We're ethno-religion indigenous to the Middle East, to the land of Israel and Judea. I, I wasn't Ashkenazi enough or European enough or white enough or whatever we're going to call it for the, for the Ashkenazi kids. And it was very patronizing. Patronizing. I don't, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but I'm white passing. And I felt that because I was Hispanic and I feel like that sense of racism within our own community with some of the members of the Jewish community it's it's really sad and also that I mean this is this is one of the main reasons why I created my media company it's to show that Jews are just all different shapes and sizes and colors and creeds and all Jews are, they're just so many different types of Jews, and I feel like this country just whitewashes Jews. We're seen as, oh, we love bagels. We're, we have white privilege. We're all rich. We're, we have money. And it's, it's the opposite of that. And that's, I think that's something that just needs to be like, directed out of our minds that we're not white the whole reason of the holocaust was that we weren't white enough hitler didn't consider us white and we're not we had to assimilate to anywhere we went to and a lot of the jews went to europe and had to assimilate to white culture and that's why a lot of jews that are ashkenazi and even middle eastern jews they're people that consider us white and we're not and sometimes when I talk with people who are not Jewish, who are from Asia or Middle East, they, they say, no, you guys aren't white. And 
I, I agree with them. And it's very, it, it's a very complicated situation. I'm sorry, I just went off on a rant. But, but. I think what you're saying about um, the, that you weren't white enough or you weren't because of the you know mix of Cuban and Persian, your dad being Cuban and me yeah. being from Iran, that mentality is also among other cultures as well. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of black Jews go through that situation too, of that they're made to choose between their Jewishness and their blackness because here it goes again, people consider Judaism very white. And it's that same, it's kind of connected in a way of that, oh, you're, you, you're not Jewish enough or you're not. But a lot of Ethiopian Jews are so connected with both. And I think it's, it's very beautiful. And I think it's, I mean, they're, if I'm not mistaken, Ethiopian Jews are considered the lost tribe. It's just, I, I saw that a lot with what recently happened in the Jamie Foxx fiasco where a lot of black Jews were made to choose between their Judaism and their blackness. And it was really disgusting to see because it's, I had a similar situation where I was made to choose between my Persianness and my Hispanicness. And I think everybody goes, everybody who's mixed or everyone who has part, multiple parts of themselves, they're made, they're, they have that similar struggle of people, people making them choose between it and it sucks. It really, really sucks. I'm sure you felt that where you were made, you're made to choose between your Persianness and your Americanness. For me, it wasn't uh, honestly wasn't something that for me it was clear. I didn't have to choose because I consider I don't consider Iran my country anymore. I consider okay. it America. Uh, I consider myself American. Um, You're very detached. I'm very detached. So, um, and I think because of that, I know some people, they remember so many details from mm -hmm. when they were a child in Iran. And there aren't that many things. I don't remember all the details. Yes, I do remember some, but nothing like, nothing like other people remember when they came here at the same age as me. So I think it's because I'm completely detached from... You were happy, you, you became happier here. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and for me, it wasn't a choice to choose between my Persian-ness or whatever you want to call it and being American uh, because I love speaking English. <laughs> so if I had the choice of speaking English or Persian, I would choose English. I'm more comfortable. Uh, speaking English, especially in the medical field, uh, I kind of stutter, well not stutter, but if I uh, have to speak Persian and use medical terms, very difficult for me. So I feel like I belong, I feel like I'm belo I belong, belong here. here. Um, mm -hmm. And interesting, a lot of my patients once they find out I'm from Iran, they, they're very interested. In, well, did you go back? Did, do you miss it? I'm like, not at all. And I have no desire to go back. 
unless there's a change in the government and yeah. leadership, just to go, just to see what the country looks like, because it was a beautiful country. I don't know how it is now, having been back uh, since I left in 1983. So. We're going we're gonna to get into more of that with a guest later on in the season. I actually had someone who is very much, you guys are going to find out who it is, very much involved in Iranian activism, supporting the revolution, uh, and it's kind of got a glimpse, glimpse of it with you, but we're going to get into it more with a lot of the facts and a lot of the history, and that's going to be really cool. You'd like watching that episode because they're very, very cool, the person that came on. Did I interrupt you? No. Okay. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? I think I made it clear that um, with a lot of hard work, you can be anything you want to be in this country. So sky is the limit. Nobody limits you in your education, what you want to be, who you want to love, what you want to wear, who you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I love about this country. All right. And I think that ends this episode. Thank you so much for watching. This is the second episode, so there's a lot more to come. You have eight more episodes of the season, and I'm very, very excited for you all to see the rest of the season, and I'm glad I got to start it off and have you as my first guest. Thank you. And I'm very lucky to have you as a mom. You're very inspirational. You're one of my role mo my number one role model. Oh, I, I have a lot of role models, but you're number one. Oh. Thank you for watching. You can find me at at Hot Jewish Energy, at Hot Jewish Podcast, and at Michael T. Valdez with an S at the end. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and threads. It's not called Twitter anymore. It's called X. So I'm going to keep... It's going to be Twitter throughout this whole season, but since we filmed this later, yeah, but... Everyone can find my mom at Dr. Edna Kappenhas, K-A-P-E-N-H-A-S, as in Sam. She's on Instagram. You can also, if you want to get a, set up an appointment, you can set up an appointment at the Ellen Hermanson Breast Center in Southampton, New York. She is open for business, taking patients. <laughs> and if you'd like to get involved with the mission in any way, the Instagram for my mom's nonprofit medical breast cancer medical mission is at IBCSM. And a link will be going up soon for the 2024 mission. Most likely it is going to be GoFundMe.com slash IBCSM 2024. And love your support. It's an official nonprofit, so it is tax deductible. And that's it for this episode. Again, thank you for watching. Have a great day, night, whenever you're listening to this. And we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Chodafes. 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 Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.